possible that we might see record viewing figures. Shows renewed in May. Having to reduce their advertising out there as well. Pretty positive for the game. That has increased seventeen percent year on year. Hello and welcome to the AMP, the podcast from Ampere Analysis that brings you the latest news, research, and business insights from industry experts in the global media landscape. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of season two of the AMP podcast. My name is Guy Bisson, Executive Director of Ampere Analysis, and I'm going to be chatting today with analysts Daniel Gatter, Alice Thorpe, Rina Zhao, and Peter Ingram. Now, in our previous podcast, we talked about looking ahead to the second quarter, that being the first in which the full COVID-19 lockdown was widespread. And now we find ourselves two-thirds of the way through quarter three, and we have the dark cloud of a second wave of the COVID-19 virus hanging over us. We can see the full scale of the impact as many major groups have now reported their second quarters, and we knew it would be bad. But as we record this podcast on the day the UK officially entered its worst recession in modern history, the key question remains, what shape the global recovery? There are longer term questions too, like which changes in industry practice will persist beyond the virus? Will major theatrical releases continue to bypass cinemas? Will the economics of strategies that made sense under COVID still make sense when we finally emerge from the horror of the new coronavirus? And what will happen to the content market as the widespread resumption of production activity gets well underway? Where will demand and growth come from next? We're going to be talking through these issues and many more this week. With you, Daniel, because you've been looking in detail at quite a few of the quarter two results. Um, And we are starting to get a very clear picture of the scale of the impact that lockdown, the lockdown quarter, if you like, has had on the advertising sector and on other sectors in the wider industry. Can you summarise what those results have told us? Yes, absolutely. And as I think you alluded to, uh, this was expected to be a quarter that we saw significant declines. So TV advertising revenues across many of the major broadcasters that we've looked at have declined over the second quarter in Western Europe and the US. Uh, For Western Europe, actually, we saw more aggressive lockdown measures, you know, leading to higher employment, lower consumer spending, and that economic contraction that you've talked about. Advertiser confidence was coupled with this and this began at the end of the first quarter, but we really saw those drastic advertiser withdrawals throughout the second quarter. For major broadcasters in Western Europe, the ones that have published, we've seen double-digit decline in uh, in Europe. For example, for ITV, 41% down year on year for the second quarter. So a really uh, big decline there. If we turn our attention to the US, although a lighter form of lockdown, um, going on in certain states and, and then happening sort of not really in, in other states. This this hasn't actually shielded 
them completely from the economic impact of the pandemic. Again, the majority of broadcasters were experiencing double-digit declines. But what's really interesting about the US and, and the broadcasters there, it was how exposed broadcasters were to sports broadcasting. Uh, that, that was what impacted them the most. So if we look at Disney and Turner, who controlled the sports rights for the NBA and MLB, both leagues which were paused through the second quarter, uh, we saw declines of 40% and 37% for Disney and Turner over the quarter. The question is, um, what shape the recovery? Is it going to be V-shaped? Is it going to be U-shaped? Or is it going to be, as I heard a commentator say this morning, like a rocket taking off? Well, first, we have to look at the economic indicators, and we are beginning to see signs of slower recovery as, as economies start to open up. Uh, we've seen growth in jobs, growth in consumer spending towards the end of the second quarter and into July. However, governments do remain cautious around this, and, and opening economies has been a slower, more phased approach uh, with certain businesses opening. So rather than you know what we thought at the beginning of the year, which might have been a, more of a V-shaped, I think we're looking at a slow recovery and more of a U-shape in terms of that recovery. But if we, again, turn our attention to sort of broadcaster advertising revenues, broadcasters are indicating, again, uh, adding to that evidence of, of, of an improving situation that advertisers are returning to broadcasters uh, in July. And for the US in particular, the end of the year, we'll also see a boost in advertising revenue for the upcoming presidential elections, which typically and historically has had a significant impact on advertising. But, you know, I also want to point out that, that what you said at the beginning, any, you know, we have this cloud of a second lockdown over us, any any lockdown will cause further economic difficulties and again, impact the advertising in that way. So what we're expecting here is, is that the longer term um, sort of ad recovery will continue into 2021, but a fuller recovery shouldn't really be expected until well into 2022. So there's a lot of things about this crisis that um, are immediate, have an immediate impact on the industry and some that will have a delayed impact. One of the things that we've been talking amongst ourselves about uh, Daniel is, of course, the likely impact, particularly of the ad downturn on content spend. Um, what's the outlook for that? Yes, and, and, and that really has to do with their exposure to the advertising market. So if we look at sort of broadcasters first, you know, it's, it's a key revenue stream for them. And in many cases, uh, the downturn in advertising revenue has led to cost-cutting measures, including programming budgets. Um, so for broadcasters, alongside sort of reducing the program budgets around TV and film, uh, they also have to contend with uh, deferred sports broadcasting, with the cancellation postponement of events, uh, as well as the Olympics, usually uh, big, big there. So we'll see... Um, in terms of content spend for broadcasters, uh, definitely depressed in, in 2020. Um, and the production shutdown will, will have that impact as well. But if we, we have a look at sort of the other end of the, the spectrum and those that have been really upping content spend over the last few years, and I'm, and I'm talking about the subscription video on demand platforms like Netflix and Amazon and the direct-to-consumer plays, uh, it's slightly different. Uh, as we saw at the beginning of the year and we highlighted in our earlier coverage, Netflix, for example, has lot longer lead times in terms of its content. So actually its spend and its slate uh, for content is set through 2020 and into 2021. But overall, I think the production shutdown for broadcasters and, and for, for SVOD platforms is likely to have created uh, a demand for newer content. We know that archival content was on the rise through the quarter, um, but there's an opportunity here for, uh, for producers and content creators as broadcasters and platforms look to add new content, increase their spend as the economic situation improves. So I want to bring Alice in on this discussion. Alice, um, you've been looking a lot at production and commissioning trends. 
one of the positives, I guess, of stopping production, um, at least from a financial perspective, is is that costs dropped for many of the major producers and studios because they weren't making stuff. Um, we're entering a phase, I guess, of significant and widespread restart of production, albeit tentatively. Um, how quickly is that business ramping back up? Um, well, it, it really depends uh, in terms of the kind of content we're looking at here. Um, it's still tentative, especially in scripted space. I mean, the major US broadcasters were touting uh, sort of mid to late August production restarts. However, there have been significant delays in terms of negotiations with local production guilds. So, I mean, if you're if you're shooting your show in Vancouver, um, but the, the health and safety regulations are being set from, from L.A., um, there's something of a back and forth going on in terms of re- you know, areas that have coped better um, with the COVID lockdown, being less keen to bring in strict testing regimes for their crews and so on. Um, so all that kind of wrangling is still going on. Um, uh, in terms of unscripted content, that's recovered much quicker. Um, and I think, in a, in, in a sense, it has become sort of the, the, the that's what's um, broadcasters are really leaning on the unscripted content um, for a little while longer at least they're going to be uh, needing that to plug those gaps in the schedules um, especially with the further delays to the scripted production. So um, we put out a couple of reports and you've just alluded to the trend there about uh, the differential effect on scripted and unscripted and obviously scripted particularly big international drama was was disproportionately hit. Um, do you think there's a, a long-term impact or shift in what's getting made at the moment? Um, long-term, I think the commissioning numbers at the minute are actually back up to um, comparable to where they were prior to lockdown. Um, obviously, scripted um, is a little uh, slower to recover, but um, the July numbers we were seeing, even scripted uh, commissions approaching what they were um, in July 2019, um, so I think that even there, there is recovery um, in terms of the type of content that's getting made. You alluded earlier to that um, sort of silver lining, as it were, to the, to the lockdown in that um, the, the financially speaking, the, the lack of content getting made um, did mean a, a kind of saving in content spend. Um, another aspect of that was these kind of low cost formats we were seeing coming in, um, a lot of self-shot footage and so on. Um, that broadcasters in particular were using to tide them over during the lockdown. But I think now we've shifted away from that. I think um, in terms of uh, the longer term, the self-shot um, kind of content is going to remain the purview of sort of the short form and the social video um, space. Um, and uh, already we're seeing um, production values on, on unscripted content shifting uh, back up to the, to the uh, kind of levels that they were uh, pre-lockdown. So I don't think the sort of really cheap formats are something that's going to stick around uh, for that long. So before I, I bring Arena in on the conversation, let, let, let me leave you with um, an impossible question um, <laughs> in these very uncertain times. Um, what's the outlook, I guess, timing-wise for a return to full normality, whatever that is? Um, yep, it's an interesting one. <laughs> As I, I mentioned, the major US broadcasters previously, um, 
they're already talking about extending their uh, current TV season into next summer, which would be something which is pretty unprecedented in terms of the um, the length of that sort of um, high end scripted stuff um, uh, um, impinging on the, the sort of summer uh, period. Um, I think what's what's something we can definitely say is that um, international markets are going to be certain international markets anyway are going to find their production norms. Um, possibly, potentially irrevocably changed by this experience. I mean, I know Arena has been doing a bit of a, a deep dive on, on Korean content recently, and so this is probably something she can speak to as well. But um, the South Korean industry has historically been very reliant on the kind of production which overlaps um, with air dates on scripted uh, on scripted titles. Um, and pre-production, full pre-production is, is still something of a of a, a less common thing there. Um, it's been gradually changing with the arrival of the SVODs and so on. However, um, I think uh, this lockdown and COVID experience will really be making uh, South Korean broadcasters and um, similarly broadcasters in Turkey, re- who have a similar way of um, doing things, rethink uh, their production norms and their scheduling in that regard. Uh, so that's something we might see, you know, no return to normality, a new normality really there. Okay, well, that's a nice segue to bring Arena in on the conversation. Uh, certainly, we've been highlighting for a good while, at least a couple of years, the trend that is the internationalization of content, um, moving away from US production being the be all and end all uh, of international sales. Um, and it's been driven, of course, by streaming players, Netflix, but others as well. Um, Irina, tell us where Korean content fits into that wider picture. Yeah, sure. Uh, So we have indeed seen Korean content becoming more and more popular, not only in Asia, but also across the world. So in the meantime, the major ASFOR platforms have all started to include more and more Korean content into the catalogue. Uh, Netflix, for example, has been particularly strong in providing Korean content. It has not only cooperated with the Korean broadcasters to bring um, its titles onto Netflix, but also has started its own regional productions and commissionings in South Korea, uh, partnering with the local studios. However, uh, not all Korean titles are available in all the markets Netflix operating. So if we look at one specific market, available titles drop drastically, usually just accounting for 1% to 2% of its total catalog. And uh, the same for Amazon and Hulu. So although it has started to include more Korean content, most of them are quite old, are more than three years old. And... Um, and they're not available in all the markets they're operating. So although Korean content has become more and more visible and included in the major streaming platforms, um, it's still, uh, its content is still quite fragmented and its availability is limited. So it's very much about specific markets where this content has, has wide appeal. Um, what, what, what are some of the key markets for Korean content geographically? Uh, well, I think outside of Korea, it will be the neighboring markets where Korean contents are the most popular, such as China, Japan, and the Southeast Asian markets, such as Malaysia, Indonesia, and the Philippines. But actually, the Korean wave have spread it to the Middle East, to Latin America, as well as North America, where most of the Korean diaspora lives. Um, 
Actually, across all the 22 markets Empire conducts consumer survey, one in five consumers say they watch Korean content regularly. So it has really become a global offering, sort of confining a few specific markets. Okay. So we, we know that K-pop uh, found global appeal fairly recently, um, incredibly widespread appeal of that uh, genre of music. What What's the appeal for international buyers in particular of Korean TV content? Uh, well, I think the biggest appeal of Korean content will be from consumer demand. As I just said, uh, people generally have a quite big appetite for Korean content. And I think secondly, uh, it's the good quality of Korean content, uh, especially with Parasite winning six Oscar awards earlier this year. Uh, Korean content is gaining more and more international recognition and popularity. And I think the third of you might be uh, Korean contents are generally very entertaining. They're very light and seldom controversial. They are appealing to people across different age groups, across different uh, social groups. They're family friendly and they are appealing to both young people and uh, older group of people. So uh, Korean content is really a part of uh, content that everyone can find relief and chill on. And I think last but not the least, uh, from the price perspective, Korean content is definitely not as expensive as the Hollywood or Western content. So it's fairly easy for the international buyers to start from acquiring um, maybe older or more classic Korean content and gradually expand to more uh, newly produced and trendy titles. Of course, price always absolutely key. So Korean content, one of the hot international content types to keep an eye on. One one more trend that we're going to talk about today, though, and it's been a super hot topic in the industry over the last couple of months, is premium video on demand, or PVOD. Um, I guess until Disney's recent decision to, to release the live-action version of Mulan straight to PVOD, it's fair to say that bypassing theatrical release was seen largely as a strategy for for mid-tier movies. Um, Peter, has, has anything really changed about that? Well, I think that it's important to say that PVOD is a technology that is very much benefiting the lockdown scenario. So in the case of smaller and mid-tier titles, it makes a lot more sense to distribute the films using premium video on demand because when cinemas are eventually able to return to full strength, it will be the blockbuster titles that edge some of these smaller titles out of release slates. This will be important for both studios and exhibitors themselves, because they'll be keen to recover some of the lost revenues from the first half of the year. Looking to larger titles, though, there are certainly circumstances in which bigger releases could earn comparable revenues from a PVOD release. However, there are significant risks involved. If the transactions that would have been allocated to a theatrical release of a title are then converted to PVOD, only 25% of these transactions could be lost before the PVOD release no longer makes sense. Uh, using Mulan as an example of a PVOD release is also somewhat interesting when you compare it to the other titles that have been released so far this year. 
Mulan is being distributed on Disney Plus at a premium premium fee of $29.99. And you also need a subscription to Disney Plus to watch it. Most of the other PVOD releases that have occurred so far uh, due to lockdown have only been at $19.99. So I think in the case of Mulan, this is very much a one-off example. Uh, It may be repeated by some of the larger films, but it remains to be seen how successful it will be before other studios adopt similar strategies for their bigger blockbusters. That's an important point, though, of course, that Disney has got a double uptick, not just um, deriving the revenue from the PVOD rental, but also a significant potential upswing in Disney Plus subscribers. And I guess that double whammy of revenue uh, makes it an interesting prospect for Disney in this case. Um Thinking ahead, though, to a day when COVID-19 is a distant memory, and and we all pray that day will come sooner rather than later, what do you think a typical studio release strategy will look like, considering, say, a, a full year of releases? I think that some of the major studios will adopt split strategies that can utilize PVOD whilst maintaining Uh, the benefits of theatrical distribution. Uh, Most of the studios have been experimenting with strategies during lockdown that have completely eschewed the theatrical window. However, it remains one of the best sources of revenues for titles throughout their life cycle, Uh, not only because uh, they are usually the window in which most people see the film, but also because tickets are charged on an individual basis, as opposed to PVOD and other forms of retail and rental income, where a transaction entails uh, the viewings for multiple parties. You take a film home and you share it with people in your family, you share it with your friends. Whereas going to the theatre, everyone pays a ticket price, and overall that will accumulate to significantly greater revenues. It is important to stress that using PVOD is still a valid strategy that some of these studios can adopt. Uh, using Mulan again as an example, it has decide, um, Disney has decided to release the film on Disney Plus only in the markets for which it operates. However, this still allows for a theatrical release in some of the other global territories, specifically in China, which doesn't have an especially mature transactional video market, making it... Uh, a case where the film can potentially benefit uh, from a third revenue stream, not only the theatrical, but also the uptake in Disney Plus subscriptions and the premium rental costs. I see. So it's it's interesting times, certainly. I guess one of the key questions is uh, which strategies will persist when we do finally come out of COVID-19. There's been a lot of things that have changed in the last few months. The big swing towards SVOD and streaming TV, experimentation around PVOD, uh, production hiatus that we're now coming out of. The only thing that is certain at the moment is uncertainty, and we all look forward to an end to that. And that concludes this episode, episode two, season two of the AMP podcast. We'll be back in one month's time with more analysis, more insight, 
and more of our data to share with you. Please do join us. And thank you very much for listening.